Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. This is half an hour of science on your radio. My name is Claire. On the show today, I have a very special guest. John the Brewer from Brick Lane Brewery is going to come and talk to us about the science of beer, specifically how scientists are genetically modifying yeast to make it taste like hops. So then... You don't have to add hops to the beer. Craziness. Oh, well, we will hear all about that later. Yeah. Chris, what do you have for us today? I, well, here's a question for you, Claire. How big is the universe? Um, I think the universe is as big as the universe is. It's universally large. (laughs) This is why I am talking about this today, because clearly you you guys are not up to answering this No, 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 wait. I I know how big it is. It's twice as big as half the size of the universe. Well, stay tuned to see if Chris has got an adequate answer for us. On with the show. So there is science news in the world of beer and our favourite brewer of all, John Selton from Brick Lane Brewing, <laughs> is here to talk us through the latest updates in the science of beer. John, welcome to Lost in Science. Hey, Claire. How are you? It's good to be back. Oh, it is good to have you back. Um, now, John, let's just jump straight into it. This new research uh, published in Nature Communications. Yep. It came out in March this year and it's got one of the most boring paper names, as a lot of these <laughs> tend to have. It was called... Industrial Brewing Yeast Engineered for the Production of Primary Flavour Determinants in Hopped Beer. How's that? Oh. Or look, mum, no hops, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I like your title better. It's all about using um, a gene editing technology, Mm -hmm. as some of our listeners might be familiar with. It's the CRISPR technology um, to create a strain of yeast that not only ferments the beer, but also gives it the hops flavour at the same time. So... Am I right in thinking? Yeah, that exactly. Got, it, so, just, it just precludes hops altogether. It, it could do, yeah. So okay. it's uh, it's really at the start of its development cycle, this stuff, um, but really big news. And it's probably been one of the biggest pieces of news in brewing science that's been out there for a fair while. Um, so it's caused big waves. Really? Yeah, lots and lots of attention. The waves news- of beer. Waves of beer or waves of interest and waves, waves of, of concern among certain parts of the industry. But look, it's, um, it represents a real change or a real innovation. And it's one of these disruptions that we knew was coming, right? Um, CRISPR-Cas9, the CRISPR-Cas9 system has been big in science news for, for years now. And people have sure. said, wow, this is going to revolutionise yeah. industry, agriculture. agriculture even our own bodies, you know, we're going to bring woolly mammoths back from the dead, you know. And this is, in beer, this is the first iteration we're seeing of the impact of these new, cheap, um, simple gene editing technologies. 
So let's just back up a little bit and talk generally about flavour in beer mm-hmm. because you're a brewer but you're yep. also a, um, a specialist in beer flavour and a um, and a judge. Mm-hmm. Um, you often judge um, competitions, yeah, well, international competitions. Well, straight after this, as a matter of fact, <laughs> where it's it's Good Beer Week um, in, in Melbourne at the moment and it's also the Australian International Beer Awards. So we're heading... Straight after this interview, down to down to Colonial Brewing in Port Melbourne for the for the judge induction and for all the calibration session, and then um, and then uh, the next three days from eight am till early evening, we'll be yeah we'll be tasting beers from around the world. So in one of the in one of the largest beer competitions there is in the in the planet. But I'm sure this will be a topic of discussion, yes. right? Lots of brewers are talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's made waves not just in the big industrial brewers and not just amongst um, uh, yeast biotechnologists or not amongst um, uh, hop farmers. Even the small guys, even tiny little breweries are sitting up and listening because of the types of flavours associated. They're the sorts of flavours that craft brewers are really seeking out. Hand in hand with this craft brewing revolution that's taken place over the past 15, 20 years has been this huge upsurge in consumer preference for hoppy beers, beers with lots of hop-derived flavour. And so... A lot of people are paying attention. So can we get back to the basics of um, the tastes in beer? So um, generally what what sorts of flavours do we we see in beer? Like what is hop derived and what is um, maybe yeast derived? Yeah, sure. So beer traditionally at least is made by just four things, you know, very, very simple product. Water. Water is sort of the matrix. It's sort of like the blank canvas, which, um, you know, accentuates certain aspects of other flavours, but itself is, you know, makes up by volume the largest percentage of the beer, but it's pretty neutrally flavoured or not strongly flavoured. There's malt, which contributes sort of bready, caramelly, sweet, roasted or toasty flavours. It's also where all the alcohol comes from in the beer. You know, all the all the sugar in the brewing process is derived essentially from, usually from malted barley or other grains. From hops, so hops impart flavours that can be spicy or fruity or citrusy or juicy or grassy or herbal, a whole range of different flavours. And yeast, um, which can be either really clean and crisp and neutral or sometimes really estery, pear-like, bubblegummy, banana-y, bubble Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some yeast strains out there that produce sort of bubblegummy flavours, but traditionally none of the flavours that are associated with hops. So they're the four main sources of flavour in beer traditionally. And so uh, to have a yeast that can provide um, not only the flavours traditionally associated with yeast... Yeah but also flavours associated yeah. with hops is a pretty big deal. Yeah, so um, look, it's a, it's a huge step. So what these researchers at UC Berkeley have done is they've, they've used the CRISPR-Cas9 system to, um, to basically insert um, genes that are responsible for um, the biosynthesis of um, these group of chemicals usually produced in plants called terpenes. Um, terpenes. Yeah, so there's two mm. in particular. There's one called linalool and one called geraniol, and they're, they're – they're these monoterpenes that are really strongly correlated with what you'd call, you know, hoppy flavour in beer. Mm-hmm. Beer that, you know, flavours that could be perceived as being citrusy or um, or fruity. So your classic sort of craft beer type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, and we're thinking, you know, hop driven craft beer. Right. Think, um, yeah. think pale ales. Think yeah. IPAs. Yeah. So these these terpenes, these group of chemicals, normally the product of biosynthetic pathways in plants. Um, these guys have, have found these genes and actually, you know, using this CRISPR-Cas9 system, inserted them into yeast's genome. So 
what happens then is brewers are able to introduce these these flavors into the beer or are able to create the you know switch on these um the biosynthesis of of linalool and geraniol in brewers yeast rather than having to actually turn to hops so it's a yeah it's a huge huge step it's quite quite amazing stuff and have they um have they found these genes from hop plants themselves yeah, really interesting story this so Hops are an uh, area of um, a lot of research at the moment. So people, lots of people around the world are thinking about hops and, um, and the biosynthetic pathways for these, for these group of chemicals, for these monoterpenes, aren't very well understood in hops. They've got some ideas about them. But interestingly enough, no, they didn't actually use hops as the donor for these genes. So the researchers um, looked a bit wider and they found um, other plants uh, that produce these same groups of chemicals, and in particular, linalool and geraniol. And uh, yeah, surprisingly enough, they came from from basil and from mint. So they actually uh, the, the the donors for them these genes were from completely different species species that you don't typically think about being associated with beer production. That's incredible. Yeah. So what's happened is they've looked at um, looked through uh, through you know all the scientific literature literature out there to find um, the genes that they know are responsible for coding for these um, terpene um, synthases and basically chopped them out of those plants using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, inserted them into not just lab yeast, not just the workhorse of sort of um, um, research um, labs, but actual industrial brewer's yeast. Brewer's yeast, yeah, which the sort is of... a different strain altogether. Exactly. Well, there's a cornucopia of strains out there, but this is a this is a strain that's actually used in brewing production around the world. And so um, it's not just um, academically interesting, it's got practical applications, um, really interesting ones. You are listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network, and our guest in the studio today is John Selton from Brick Lane Brewing, talking about the science of beer and some new research that is creating a strain of yeast that not only ferments the beer, but gives the beer hops flavours. So for brewers like yourself, yes. what are the benefits for using um, for using a yeast and not maybe not using yeah, sure. um, these, these hops? Yeah. Well, brewers have a love obsession with hops. You know, like we, we, we're obsessed with it. And we're supply chain people. We love the people who produce these hops as well and the fashion in which they're grown and we care deeply about it. But... Um, look, they always pose difficulties in using hops. You know, there's lots of inconsistencies um, from crop year to crop year. Um, and it seems Flavor like this is... Flavour inconsistencies? Yeah, that's right. So different growing... I mean, we're dealing with agricultural products here, right? So different growing conditions in different crop years will lead to um, different levels of oil. These terpene mm-hmm. levels, the, these groups of chemicals that we're talking about that contribute hop flavour will vary from crop year to crop year and even from farm to farm. So the little local growing conditions will will create um, consist- inconsistencies. They can be largely addressed. I mean, and that's what us brewers do through blending and through sourcing hops creatively. There's also, uh, we're, we're control freaks as well, brewers. <laughs> so um, we also love being in control of our processes. So the idea, I guess, of being able to create these terpenes ourselves, you know, in more highly controlled conditions, conditions inside our own brewery, inside our own fermenters, and we can really carefully control um, the conditions in there. On the other hand, you know, we know that 
hop flavor is made up of a whole range of different constituents, right? It's not just the two that... It's not just these terpenes. That's right. Yeah, it's not just linalool and geraniol. There's a whole range of of um, flavor active compounds in hops, hundreds of them, that have really hard to understand, sometimes mm. synergistic effects. Sure, um, of course. And sometimes they're, uh, they're present in such minute quantities that even the... Um, they're even difficult to sort of uh, assay, you know, in the beer. Um, so we understand that um, while this is interesting academically, it's probably likely to produce, um, uh, you know, beer with a little less complexity than what you'd get from brewing with, with actual real hops. That said, the researchers have not acknowledged this and sort of said, this is just a proof of concept, guys. We can insert genes... <laughs> For the biosynthesis of anything you want, you know. So um, it really is just the start. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, really. I mean, um, have there been any trials as to what a brewed beer using this particular yeast actually tastes like? Yeah, there has been. That's been one of the really interesting things about this study. And the way the researchers have gone about it has been interesting as well. Instead of putting it up against, say, international commodity lager brands, They've actually compared it to craft beer. So the the control beers they've used in the paper are, you know, really famous beers from Sierra Nevada, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, their Torpedo IPA, you know, their big hoppy beers. Yeah, that's like um, your quintessential craft beer, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and what they've found is that they're, they're pretty good analogues. You know, they create the same flavours. What they do is they do it in a lot more consistent way than the use of traditional hops. So it gives the brewer, yeah, a greater degree of control. And how about the environmental considerations? Yeah, well, look, that was pulled out or called out by the authors as a as a driving force behind this research. Hops are hugely water and energy intensive to grow. So um, hop cultivation in um, in the US, the authors say in the paper, consumes 100 billion litres of water annually. Wow. So they're very thirsty crops. Right. Um, uh, in hop processing, the hops need to be picked. They need to be dried. The kiln fuel used to dry those hops is usually natural gas. You know, it creates carbon emissions. There's lots of electricity use, um, running the picking machines, running the giant blowers that they have moving this warm air around during hop kilning. Um, and this isn't even considering, say, even just the diesel that's used in uh, the tractors, you know, during the harvests. So, I mean, there's a potential here to reduce, I guess, the, you know, the upstream or supply chain um, environmental impact of, of making beer, you know, a, an industry that is pretty water intensive in itself and pretty energy intensive. If there's a way of, say, maybe not eliminating hops, but changing the way they're used in the brew house and, um, and supplementing them with some of these, you know, these newer um, edited yeast strains, perhaps there is an opportunity to, to sort of uh, reduce the, the, the rate at which we're uh, killing the planet. It sounds like there's a lot of ethical considerations to really take into account. Um, yeah. and, and as someone who is both a brewer and a, um, and a judge yeah. of beer, yeah. how does this make you feel about the future of craft beer? Yeah, look, I think a lot about the human factor more than anything else, I think. You know, like just because I've, I've lived next to hop farms, I'm great friends with a lot of hop growers and, and hop merchants. You know, they're the people we interact with on a daily basis in, in breweries. Um, 
It's also got to do with tradition, right? You know, hops are um, have been part of beer for a very, very long time, and um, and only now are they really coming into their own. It's been this last ten years that we've been um, that we've rediscovered, you know, the amazing flavours that hops can contribute. So it'd be really disappointing from that point of view if people, in an effort to say save a few cents, or uh, you know, went away from using real hops um, or uh, or funding, say the the amazing efforts of hop breeders. You know, Australia is a real leader globally when it comes to hop breeding. So that's what I immediately think of. In a way, brewers have always been messing with the genomes of yeast, right? We've been putting selective pressure on yeast for centuries. We've been harvesting and repitching and repropagating those yeast strains that we enjoy. Sure. I mean, I mean, the fact that we've got a brewer's yeast is is a yeah. feat of science. The, the phenomenal thing is there's not just one, Claire. There's, 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 there's a bunch, right? And they're all, they've all grown up because of the selective pressure put on them by brewers. Right. Yeah. So in, south, in the south of Germany, you know, the home of Bavarian Hefeweizen, you know, this beer that's characterised by its bananery and clovey flavour, um, flavours that are created during the during the biosynthesis of, um, of amino acids um, in in yeast. You know, brewers have selected those batches of beer. You know, this is before we knew about microbiology. This has been around for a long time. They, this batch tastes great. It tastes like cloves and bananas. That's cool. We'll reuse that yeast to repropagate another batch, and so on and so forth. If something doesn't taste so good, get rid of it. So you know, in a way, we've been like I said, co-evolving, I guess, with yeast in one shape or form for a long time. Um, this is just a bit of a radical departure from that in that we're taking um, genes from an entirely different species and putting them into the yeast genome. We're fast-tracking the process. Yeah, that's right. Like you were saying before, this research is so new and advanced and it goes from being in the academic realm to being in our pints and um, schooners potentially very quickly – should industry be careful? This isn't some magic bullet, right? This isn't some solution that brewers are going to deploy and get rid of the use of hops, you know. But it's um, it's something that we're thinking about because hops always in our supply chain are a really difficult thing to manage. Um, and it's a really timely discovery, this one. In Australia, just a couple of months ago, um, there's only two real big hop producers in Australia – and one of them burnt down. Just this season, just in the middle of harvest, or just after the harvest, fire went off. It burnt down all of their picking infrastructure. But more importantly, the entire year's crop, or a good deal of it, went up in smoke. So there's a lot of brewers out there who are suddenly really highly attuned to risk and are thinking about, you know, what, what happens if disasters like this happen. We're in a changing global climate, you know. Um, uh, water is scarce, and disasters and things like that happen. So um, so I think there'll be a lot of brewers who, who think about this um, as a potential solution. On the other hand, <laughs> brewers are intrinsically traditional, you know, really resistant to change. A lot of brewers have, and international brewers and craft brewers alike, have made global statements about them never using any genetically modified ingredients, never using any transgenic ingredients. And, um, and that's pretty hard position to change and a pretty strong message to send as well. So yeah, there are a whole bunch of moral quandaries here. It's a mess. <laughs> but it's an interesting mess. It is an interesting mess. Yeah. John Selton from Brick Lane Brewing, thank you so much for coming into Lost in Science today and have a wonderful time at Good Beer Week. Thanks. As I'll see everyone I, there. As I'm sure you will. John, thanks again. Thanks, Claire. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. 
Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And as I asked in the beginning, how how big do you think the universe is? I stand by my answer. The universe is as big as one universe. Oh, uh, but it is expanding, right? It is. So, it, that is true. So maybe when this, I, that's an important as soon fact as I as soon as I say how big the universe is, it then gets bigger. That 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 happens too. Um, Stu, you had an uh, enlightening quote for us. I did. I did. Douglas Adams. Well, actually, Douglas Adams was quoting. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which says, Space is big, really big. You might think it's a long way down the street to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Yeah, and this is actually quite accurate. Space is very big. Let's just talk about how big it is. Well, this is an interesting thing. So the universe, as the name implies, it's everything, isn't it? Uh, I suppose there's a couple of ways of looking at this question. The real answer to what we think about the size of the universe is right to the shape of it, which basically is that the universe is it's infinite. So there is no end. No, there is no end. There is no shape? Well, so there is a shape. No, there is no shape. It's flat. <laughs> uh, so in, in Einstein's general theory of relativity, space can be curved. And so the universe can have a shape. Uh, and if it has a shape that it could like curve around on itself and have like be finite in extent. So this is a useful analogy, um, but it is really it's quite easy to get your head around. However, that doesn't seem to be that the way the universe is. The universe, as far as we can tell from measuring the way that gravity works and the amount of mass there is in it and the way uh, the way it's expanding, it appears just to be flat. And so it just stretches on forever. But that's what we can tell from, from the gravity and from the, the mathematical theories. The true answer is we don't really know how big it is because we can only see so far because the speed of light is finite. Yeah, so we can only see as far as the light's been able to travel since the universe began. Essentially. So we kind of... Have a have a time limit on how big the universe is. Yes, what we talk when we talk about when people talk about the size of the universe, often talk about them about the observable universe, which is yeah, it's the as far as you can see, um, and this is essentially looking back to the Big Bang is the earliest, as because when you see further out, you go back in time. So uh, if you see something that's say a hundred light years away, you see the light that left it a hundred years ago. The further you look out, the further back in time you're going. So the furthest we can go, obviously, is the Big Bang itself, which is about 13.8 billion years ago. So that's the furthest away thing we can see is 13.8 billion light years. Well, so the furthest back in time. But when we people talk about the size of the universe, they don't usually look at that distance because the universe has been expanding since then. So the thing that you're looking at then, that's like a lot further than... How do you measure how far away that thing is? So, so it's moved is, since... So, yeah. So yeah. you assume, basically, that everything is uh, moving at the same kind of... The universe is expanding at the same rate everywhere. And you look at, basically, how far away that point would be now. So you Got extrapolate, it? based on the speed of the object, how far away it should be. Yeah, that's assuming right. Assuming it kept accelerating right. at the Which same rate. Which may seem an arbitrary right. way to do things. But if you wanted to, for instance, say, you wanted to, like, count all the galaxies in the universe then you would essentially be, say, looking back to the beginning of time and counting all the galaxies between you and there and basically assuming that that's how many galaxies there are currently now in that sphere of space. Mm-hmm. Okay, looking as far as you can see. So you're with me so far? Yeah. Okay, so what, what that means is that even though 13.8 billion years is the furthest we can see back in time, the actual universe that we can see is a lot bigger than 13.8 billion light years. And the current... Current calculations seem to suggest that is it is about 93 billion light years across. 
like this diameter of that sphere is about 93 billion light years. Or if you want to go in parsecs, which is a measure of distance, not of time, Han Solo. Yeah, well, although all, I've heard theories about how that could be the case, but let's it's, not It's 28.5 gigaparsecs. Or if you like your um, metric measurements, Claire, do you like metric? Yes, I do. I prefer a metric measurement to okay. any other measurement. Okay. Is 8.8 by 10 to the 26 metres across. This doesn't sound very useful information because you're kind of going, these are big numbers. I don't really picture this. What's, what does all this mean? Yeah, so, can, you tell me, um, can you tell me this in a, in a measurement I understand, like uh, Olympic-sized swimming pools? <laughs> football fields. <laughs> plenty of football fields involved. No, it's a lot of football fields or Olympic <laughs> swimming pools. Tell you what I'll do. I'll scale it down so to get a bit of an idea of you can picture in your head. Okay. How does that sound? Yeah. Okay. So people often look at the solar system, right? And they say, looks a bit like an atom. Yep. Big thing at the middle, smaller things orbiting around it. Sure. Yeah? yeah. Vaguely. Yeah. Vaguely. Okay. Vaguely. Yeah. So going with that as a rough approximation, looking at, say, the Earth as an electron and the sun as a nucleus, I've done some calculations. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, now, using uh, a certain calculation of the size of the Earth and what they would go to an electron – um, the sun would be about the equivalent in our distance to it. It sounds about the equivalent of a nucleus of a uranium atom. So okay. as, in, as in size-wise? Size-wise. Okay, like yeah. Uranium right. atom. Okay, so imagine that we are in That's an atom. Heavy. Yeah, the sun is a, a fairly heavy atom, but it's a little uranium atom, and we are a little an electron orbiting that atom. Sure. Okay? And everyone knows how big an atom is. Don't worry, you don't know how big an atom is. Our galaxy then, the Milky Way galaxy, which is like about 100,000 light years across, Mm-hmm. Um, that would be roughly 19 centimetres across, which is about the size of a dinner plate. Okay. So, yep. Okay. So we are our solar system is an atom in this dinner plate-sized galaxy. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's – okay, so it's about the size of a dinner plate, but it's a lot lighter because – there is, you know, atom. The stars a lot further apart than atoms are in something. Um, I tried to do the. It's a bit hard to actually scale these things up because, in the way mass and things multiply. But Mind if, you, the sun, if, you had, if you had a dinner plate made of uranium atoms, it would be pretty heavy. That's right. Except, <laughs> except in this situation, if, if this, if all the star, basically a solar mass, was the same as a uranium atom, then the. Well, the galaxy was basically just like a, a little a mere wisp of smoke. I tried to do the calculations, and it came out like very, very light, as in it would be about the size of a single cell, like the weight, the weight, weight of a single cell. Weight of right. a single cell. So, what you're saying basically is that there's a lot of space in space. There is a lot of space. Yeah. So that's that's okay. We're the size of dinner plate. Now, the nearest big galaxy to us is the Andromeda Galaxy. Mm-hmm. So, imagine picture another dinner plate. Yeah. About four point eight meters away. Okay. Oh, not far at all. Not far at all, no. but it's a decent distance. Yeah. Okay, now, the entire observable universe, which consists of about two trillion galaxies... Oh, there's a lot of dinner plates. That is, would be about 179 kilometres across. But so... If it's <laughs> so like, that's, a, that's like a sphere, cube, cube metres. Yeah, it was a getting sphere uh, 179 kilometres across. So if we, we are currently... So we oh, record this show okay. in, uh, in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, mm-hmm. in 3CR in Collingwood. So, if you have a sphere that kind of so this is radius about eighty nine kilometers, which is stretched out to about Seymour, to about down to about Cape Shank, I suppose. So a big, imagine a big circle that big, but then also stretching up into the sky. Eighty nine kilometers straight up is about the edge of the atmosphere, um, and then also straight down as well. So it's an enormous sphere 
that's yeah, 179 kilometres across, just filled with little dinner plates, each a couple of metres apart. And that's essentially... Weigh, weighing them as, as much as a single cell. Yeah, that's essentially the size of the atom. Yeah, because yeah, a single, single cell. Our galaxy contains around 100 billion stars and about 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. So this is, it's big, is what I'm saying. And this is only we can see, and it goes way beyond that. It may be infinite, but even if it's not infinite, it's clearly going to be a lot bigger than we can see. So there is, yeah, I just want to make you all feel small, I guess. And, um, I don't know, it's a thing to reflect on as you look up into the night sky. <laughs> and you want to know how big is that thing? It is actually really, really, really big. That's all we have time for on Lost in Science this week. A big thank you to our guest, brewer John Selton. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Or just tune in again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.